Hey there, friends. How's it going? My name is Kyle Devlin, and I am the host of this podcast. This is the Having a Blast podcast. Having a Blast is a pop punk and emo podcast where we'll be doing a deep dive on important albums and bands. We'll also be speaking with band members, producers, and friends. If you happen to like what you hear, if you could do me a huge favor, perhaps give us a five-star review. That just really helps get the algorithms working in our favor, and then more people can hear the podcast. Or Another thing that really helps us out is if you share it with a friend. If you've got a friend that enjoys this type of music, pop punk and indie, I'd greatly appreciate it. All right, without further ado, let's get into it. Hey friends, welcome to the show. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with my new buddy, Jameson Ketchum. Jameson has worn many hats within the music industry. He's worked as a publicist, a freelance writer, an editor for publications such as Substream, Amp, and HM Magazine. He's also worked as a tour manager and a booking agent. He is also the co-host of the Godspeed podcast, so he's a busy man. I wanted to have Jameson on the show because he's about to release his book titled Name Dropping, Seeking Creative Truth Through Trendy Altruism and Punk Rock. The book is great for anybody who is into the style of music that we talk about on this show. He talks a lot about tour adventures. He talks a lot about meeting particular musicians and working with musicians in different facets and different stories and things like that. Can't wait to dive headfirst into this book. I know I'm going to love it. It was a pleasure speaking with Jameson. We bonded over bands like Amberlin and Acceptance, and we talk about having doubts while creating something. We talk about writing. We talk about the creative process in general. It was a lot of fun. I think you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, please enjoy this multiple category exploration in conversation form with my new buddy, Jameson Ketchum. What's up, Kyle? How are you, man? I'm doing good. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds great. Perfect. I feel like I always look so super pale on Zoom things. It's funny. People have asked me if I have a filter, but it's just the way my desk lamp sits. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now I see it. it. Does that weird kind of hazy thing. <laughs> yeah. I just thought you were It gets kind of dark smoking. in here sometimes. <laughs> thought you were smoking yeah. like crazy. Yeah. Getting high in this tiny little room. <clears throat> making it happen. It's Friday night, right? Oh, yeah. It is. It's, <laughs> been, it's been quite the week. I'm so glad. It, yeah. I, I never cared that much about, you know, I don't know, the weekend thing. I don't know. That sounds so stupid, but I feel like I have a good enough job now to where I don't. Uh, it's not like you're dying for Friday as much. But this oh week, yeah, I'm super excited that it's Friday. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. You've been doing a bunch of press for your book, right? Yeah, and that's that's been, I mean, awesome. Anytime that I've I've said like, oh, I'm a little tired from this thing, or I'm a little talked out, I'm like this is the best problem to have ever. Yeah, to, that's a good perspective, yeah. right? And your book came out on Tuesday, so it's coming out this Tuesday. This which, Tuesday. Yeah, depending on when this this is out, but uh, the pre-order currently is up on Amazon. So yeah, if okay, you just cool. look up 
Yeah, name dropping or my full name, Jameson Ketchum. You'll be able to find it. Radical. Okay, cool. I definitely want to ask you about that, but we'll come back to that. I have a lot of questions for you. I mean, obviously we didn't know each other before talking about getting on a podcast together. So I've been doing a little bit of research and skimming the book you sent me. Thank you for sending it, by the way. Oh yeah. Definitely dug into certain parts. I'd catch a part. It would catch my attention and I'd start reading through the entirety of the chapter, but I definitely want to take my time with it because there's a lot to ingest there. And I feel like there's so many things within the book that I could relate to. I used to be in a band and we toured in the early 2000s. And then I was in another band in the later 2000s. So the same time period. And Mm. I was listening to you on the Bad Christian podcast this morning, which that was a lot of fun. That was really cool. And we're about the same age. You're 35. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Radical. I guess getting started, how did you get involved in the music scene in the first place? I mean, you were probably being exposed to similar music that I was as a kid, but was it through the church or did you discover music before you had entered that world? Yeah. I was just listening to your episode with our mutual friend, Christy G. And so I was so glad that you got into that with her because that's something her and I talk about and bond over a lot. Yeah. Um, She's rad. Yeah. I think, I mean, church was certainly the first like, you know, musical experience for a lot of people, I think. And then of course, if you had those friends that didn't go to church and they listened to like Green Day and mm-hmm. Offspring, then there was like that influence kind of like battling each other a bit. Yeah, that um, was me. Yeah. I was yeah, the secular so- kid listening to all the <laughs> curse words. <laughs> yeah. And I remember, yeah, like the, the radio station, the big radio station here in Portland, Z100, like that was for a while, that was like pretty off limits in our household that you would like listen to it when your parents were gone kind of thing. But <laughs> nice. Yeah. And I mean, it's so funny because it's just like the most tame pop music, you know, that today, but as a kid, yeah, you're like, Ooh, this is, this is very risque, but no, yeah. Church was definitely the thing, like going to youth group and they had like a lot of churches would have, you know, the closet with all the CDs in it that you could check out for a week. And I remember that's where I saw like the super tones for the first time. I had discovered that I talked about this in the book. I discovered this TV show on Saturday nights called G rock which mm-hmm. not until I was an adult did I ever meet someone else that had heard of that. But it was on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, which was usually like the most boring thing on earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, But Saturday nights, they were like, let's do something for the kids. And they <laughs> had this show they called G-Rock where it was music videos. It, it was footage of like extreme sports, a lot of skating and snowboarding set to like stuff like MXPX, Officer Negative, POD, just stuff that blew my mind as a kid Mm -hmm. of like, wait, this is safe to listen to. This is going to be allowed because this is like fast punk. And these guys have tattoos and long hair. Like, are you, are we sure this is going to be okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So church in some ways was, yeah, a big first introduction to the bands that I certainly became the most obsessed with and led to wanting to work in the industry. So just out of curiosity, G-Rock, was this on a channel that had a loose Christian affiliation? Were there sermons on the other time slots for this particular TV channel? Okay. Cool. Yeah. So then randomly on Saturday nights, they would Mm -hmm. cut loose for the kiddos and throw up live footage of MXPX and other tooth and nail bands, I would imagine. That's cool. Yeah. It it actually, looking back, was such a cool thing because I mean, growing up, I remember my parents didn't have cable till I was out of the house. So growing up, we had like six channels. Mm-hmm. One of them being, it was channel 24, Trinity Broadcasting. And that was always the one you skipped because it was just, yeah, it was preaching all day long, 700 clubs, stuff like that. And then I think my mom somehow just stumbled onto that one night, probably while we were waiting for Walker, Texas Ranger to come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she dude. was like, yeah. And I, so I think it really was my mom that was like, I know that he's starting to really love music. This might be, you know, a good safe way to get him more into it. Because before yes. that, it was DC Talk, Newsboys, you know, that was oh, the yeah. heaviest stuff I'd ever heard by that point. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I remember DC Talk, they had 
a quasi alternative hit on the radio for a second, right? Or maybe it's not DC Talk. What was the other Christian band that had kind maybe, of a grunge uh, hit? Like on regular radio? Yeah, it was on regular radio. The Could song was about the flood. Oh. What band was that? Not DC Talk, but... It wasn't wasn't uh that's it's vaguely familiar i mean the big ones at the yeah. time were like audio adrenaline newsboys uh the flood i know that uh, maybe big tent revival something like that <laughs> oh man it's escaping me at the moment but yeah that's great <laughs> so <laughs> you guys were watching dr quinn medicine woman and then some g-rock yeah. that's rad and i think the first time i ever discovered green day was actually on 120 minutes on mtv yeah so it was similar but it was probably the secular version of that you know what i mean they were playing <laughs> underground bands at that time and i remember seeing the video for basket case and that was my introduction to green day and yeah. then very quickly after that i had friends that were also going to youth group and the camps in the summertime mm-hmm. and that's where they were discovering bands like the supertones and dc talk but i remember being instantly connected to mxpx because it felt like the christian equivalent of green day even though yeah. green day was bigger and i remember the first time i heard mxpx i'm pretty sure it was teenage politics and recording was completely different you know, just yeah. much more underground, but I was still into punk rock. So it still resonated with me and they looked mm-hmm. cool. By that point, they were already kind of part of that whole warp Tour aesthetic. So yeah. it makes sense that they were showing footage of MXPX plus all the skating because it just kind of coincided together. Yeah. And it's funny to think, I mean, back then we didn't have, you know, music wasn't as accessible and ubiquitous as it is now. So like you mentioned Basket Case, like there was an alternative radio station here in town that had started up when I was maybe in fourth or fifth grade and they, on the commercial for it they played maybe a 10 second clip of basket case and i was always so excited when that commercial came on just to hear that little clip of that song and just thinking yeah this is the best music i have ever heard like yeah yeah and it's, it's i mean we would never do that today I don't think. That's true. It's interesting how music is perceived differently based on the medium of the time, you know, Mm -hmm. with streaming and everything. And I'm fascinated by the idea of songs being resurrected or popular songs getting more popular from social media like TikTok and Instagram stories and things like that. It's just kind of wild to think about. Well, have you followed the whole Olivia Rodrigo put out that song, Good For You? And everyone's Mm -hmm. like, why does this sound familiar? And supposedly it's a lot like Misery Business. Yeah, it's like the same key. Yeah, that... I, I like didn't know how to feel. I, I definitely wasn't like angry about it or anything, but I was, for one, I thought it's crazy that a time that I still consider somewhat going on, it's actually been done for a while and it's come back around. Yeah. Full circle. Yeah. To hear kids or like teenagers be like, oh, it's this old song. It's this, apparently it's this misery business song. And you're like, no, I thought that was still, that we we're still going strong on that. But yeah. It's a cool, it's a, it's gotta be kind of an honor though, too. I would, I would think maybe not. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I think Haley appreciates that, you know, and she's still so young. I mean, she's 31 or 32 years old. So yeah, it's interesting how we sort of romanticize the young within the music industry. But at the same time, I feel as if I'm growing up with a lot of the artists that I grew up listening to. And mm-hmm. I think that's probably a good thing from their standpoint, because then there could be those parallels. You know, when I listen to the new MXPX, it's almost like I relate to it as an adult. And mm-hmm. I think that was smart of them to try to incorporate those adult themes. Yeah. into the record. I don't know how you could do it any other way unless you're just doing it inauthentically. That's just where they're at. Yeah. I always cite, I know that they're, it's not cool to like them anymore. um, Unfortunately. Yes, it is. Uh, well, no, well, not, hold on, not MXPX. That's not, I was going to say, oh, okay. yeah, I was going to say, hang on, you're defending something that you might get in trouble for. No, brand new who, oh, you, know, okay. you know, everyone loved for a long time. And, 
you know, whole other topic there. However, I always cite them as far as their first three albums were just so perfectly, and I wonder if you feel the same since we're the same age, perfectly lined up to where the first one, your favorite weapon was just very, you know, immature, very like talking about murdering your friend because he talked to your girlfriend, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And the next one got a little more serious, a little bit more about death with Deja. And then by the third one, it was like the throes of religion and deconstructing and figuring out, you know, really where you fit in life. Like just, I just, it's so perfectly lined up with everything I was going through album to album. Yeah. And people clearly connected to those three records. Even the first one, I think, like you said, it was a little bit more immature, a little bit more, you've wronged me. So I'm going to write a song about how much I hate you and what you did to me and then yeah i think deja people really connected to the themes within the words of some of the things that he was saying putting their own experiences with it i mean that's what music is essentially you take the words and you apply it to your own situation your own experiences I like it when bands are able to do that. It's unfortunate that we're encountering all of our quasi heroes. We're recognizing how fallible they are and how they make mistakes. And there's probably been a lot Mm -hmm. of things going on behind the scenes that people just aren't aware of. This is the thing that always trips me up a little bit. I'm always a little trepidatious to meet my heroes. And right. I don't really refer to them that way now. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all just human beings, but you don't want the essence of what they are to you connected to the music to be ruined Mm -hmm. in some way when you find out maybe they're not the type of person that maybe you thought they were. Yeah. But I think you just have to kind of give people the benefit of the doubt. And Totally. I had, I still think about this all the time. I had a professor in college, an English professor who asked, uh, we're talking about like hero worship and stuff. And he said, is there anyone that you admire so much that if you were given the opportunity to meet them, you'd say no, like that you would want to hold that so dear. And I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I feel that intensely you know, about anyone. And a kid next to me said, Oh, uh, Connor Oberst. I don't want to meet Connor from Bright Eyes. Like that's, and I was like, that, but that's also so cool that it means so much to him that he's like, just, just let me have my fantasy about it. Yeah. He's never going to, he's never going to live up to it. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's okay. I mean, I, from their standpoint, that might be a good thing, mm-hmm. you know, because then they don't necessarily have to live up to these expectations. I mean, with social media, you are putting your life out there front and center to a certain mm-hmm. extent. And there are people who have really embraced that and embrace that well. And it may help their public image and make people feel more connected to their art and them as people. And then I think there's probably a lot of people out there that wish there was still a little bit more of a mystery, that separation, that wall so to speak, where there isn't this voyeuristic need to see what people are doing at all times and know what everybody's up to at any given moment. So there's definitely some give and take there. Yeah. And I can't imagine, you know, being the bands that we're talking about are really big to us and and do have a ton of fans. But then you think like, what's somebody like Justin Timberlake go through on a daily basis? Sure. uh, Yeah. I mean, I, the person I always think of, I'm going to start name dropping now that, now that this is. Yeah. It's appropriate, man. Do it. Yeah. It's the title. So I don't, I don't feel too bad. I'm a huge, huge fan. Amberlynn and have been for years and people like I remember thinking that Steven their singer did a really good job of staying really private especially during like their first run he like never posted pictures of his wife or kids like rarely talked about him in interviews and I remember asking him about that because you know for better or worse like your fans kind of own you in that way and he's like I just I needed to have one place that was safe one like safe harbor because Mm -hmm. I have put so much of myself out there And he's like, so that was, you know, that was my family, not talking about my family and stuff. But he said, at the same time, people want to ask me all these personal questions. And I keep saying, like, I've written X amount of albums, giving up everything personal I can think of. Go read the lyrics. Like, it's all there. I don't Mm -hmm. know why you need to ask me about, like, my wife and kids or my religious beliefs. That's fine. But, like, I've already given so much. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So It can be a boundary. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And it's funny you mention him because I'm actually wearing an acceptance shirt right now. I thought I saw that. I've never <laughs> seen that one. That's awesome. My partner, Pamela, she lived in Minnesota for many years and she mm-hmm. went to hair school up there. And when we first started seeing each other about a year into our relationship, we're at about five and a half years now. Acceptance got back together and they scheduled two shows and one was in Minnesota. And we had been talking about maybe just doing a quick weekend getaway mm-hmm. up there anyways. And it just so happened that they were playing at the varsity mm-hmm. in Minneapolis and I said, I don't know, one of my favorite bands. And yeah. I said, I don't know if they're going to do this again. I don't know if they're going to continue doing anything at that right. point because they hadn't put out any new music or anything. Yeah. And they booked those two shows with a Spill Canvas opening and we went up there. It was incredible. They basically played Phantoms front to back and they played the new song that they released maybe a week or two later. Mm-hmm. I'm blanking on the name. But, it was that standalone single. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to be able to think of it, but it's the fact great. they did Phantoms front to back is nuts. Yeah, it was awesome. They didn't go in order. Like they played them in a different order. And I think they may have played a couple songs from the EP too, but that's where I got the shirt and I have yet to see it again, but I'm glad I bought it that night. It's a little bit like the, uh, the taking back Sunday logo that they had for a bit on happiness is actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. With the, what is it? Tiger or the Panther. I have that Panther tattooed right here on my shoulder actually. Oh, red. Nice. (laughs) The taking back Sunday one. Yeah. Like the red and black. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. There's so many bands doing that. Like I, and I I think I talk about this in the book a bit, but like Amberlynn, went away in 2014 and i remember him saying like oh you know we'll get together and play for our kids or something but like really this is it you know and if it makes sense whatever but like really feeling like this isn't a band that's gonna go away and then hop back for a cash grab and i don't think they've done that or anything i think they'll do new music and i think it'll go on in just a different way for them but Mm -hmm. the last time i saw them was in new york city and it was billed as they're gonna play cities all the way through and they finish cities and you're like well that didn't take very long so i bet they'll come out and like do some more hits you know Mm -hmm. and cities enough i mean it's still it would have been enough just like cities sure. all the way through amazing album. So they like go, you know, finish cities, go backstage, come out. Steven comes back out and he's just like, we did that because it's like a fan favorite album. That's it's so many fans love that album. And he's like, but my favorite album is never take friendship personal. It goes like this and then start to finish. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, dude. Yeah. Just That's like incredible. I had never heard a louder, a louder cheer. Like, a, like it was. I almost, I think I like teared up at that show. It being the last show and then just being like, I can't believe that's such a gift to give their fans like that. Yeah, dude. Yeah, here goes the whole second album. So spontaneously like that too. That is my favorite record of theirs. Never Take Mm -hmm. Friendship Personal. I am borderline obsessed with Amberlynn. So you and me, we're going to be buds for life, I think. That band so special to me. Yeah, that's incredible. That's really cool. I wanted to see one of those full album shows. I watched the live streams. I just, I wish if they did like a never take friendship personal tour, I would be front and center. That'd be great. Oh yeah. You wonder what they'll, what they'll do for some of these. Like, I know they did like a full, like Australia run. This is all before the pandemic, but yeah, I'm curious what they'll do now. And I, I feel like they'll, they gotta be doing another record. I think, I feel like I think they're doing it right now. I think they've, they may I, I even have it in the can it. already. I mean, they've well, alluded to, awesome. the, I think it's Nate. He's posted a couple of videos. This is probably a couple months ago where it was sort of a boomerang where he's very quickly and you can tell it's everybody in the same room recording and there's clearly somebody Gosh. sitting at yeah. a console. So uh, who knows? Maybe they're going to release an EP first and then follow it up with a full record. But I have a feeling they're probably sitting on something and they're just waiting to yeah. release it properly. I'm curious what you think about this because I, I feel like so many bands of the era that we came up in and like all these bands we talked about so far 
have, you know, they're not necessarily going to get any bigger than they already have. Like, I don't, I don't think they're mm. all, all of a sudden Amberlin's going to become U2 or anything. It'd be awesome. But I think they're just kind of figuring out, okay, like we've reached our peak and that's great. And we can continue along that peak. Mm-hmm. But if we're not going to go any higher, how can we change this up to make it make more sense for us? So I remember... I'm going to name drop again. I was talking, <laughs> I was doing an interview with Dustin Kensler from Thrice and they, and it was when they had kind of like taken a break and come back. And mm-hmm. I asked him like, you know, what made you want to come back basically? And uh, he goes, actually, we were talking to, again, to brand new. He's like, we were talking to those guys and kind of asking like, how do you get away with not consistently touring and putting an album out every, you know, sometimes three to four years? Like you really don't play the game. How, mm-hmm. how are you doing that basically? And they, the, all those guys kind of just said like, yeah, we just kind of came to a point where it was like, we want to keep doing this, but we want to do it the way that we want to we want to tour when we want record when we want and not really have to bend to anyone else and mm-hmm. dustin was like that kind of just blew my mind it was kind of like oh yeah i can just do whatever i want and like take mm-hmm. it or leave it fans and mm-hmm. so i think a lot of bands are doing that now adapting to what works best for them their schedules their families putting out music when they want and not having to stick to like a strict schedule yes absolutely and i love it because we get spoiled as music fans right we just mm-hmm. get more stuff you know i would love it if mxpx would announce a six-week tour where they cover every major market right. but i just don't think that's in the cards for them right now with yuri and tom having jobs other priorities and things mm-hmm. and families that they're taking care of it's almost like the band is like an asset, you know, they can treat it like an asset. It can be a means to an end from an investment standpoint where I would think, I would hope that Amberlin made at least half a million dollars off those live streams, if not more. Yeah, I would think I mean, I know the Under Oath live streams, the Observatory shows, those Mm -hmm. three shows, I want to say I read an article where those three shows, they made over a million dollars. Each? Or all together? Oh, just all together. From all the money associated with streaming those three shows. And that's not even necessarily... It could be counting the merchandise, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's not counting just the merchandise. So you've got a live stream that's broadcasted globally Mm -hmm. under extenuating circumstances with the pandemic. And they make, even if it's gross, over a million dollars. And then each of the members gets... I don't know, 200,000 or 180,000 or something like that after all of the costs are accounted for and everything. I would imagine Amberlin would be able to do something akin to that, you know, as far as numbers go, even if it was half, you know, if they made a half a million dollars off of all the live streams and they did more than under oath. So I'm thinking that's a pretty big investment. It's sort of like if you have a full-time gig and you buy uh, duplex and you rent it out. Mm-hmm. It's side income, but it's still substantial, especially with time. I would think a band like Thrice, a band like even Acceptance, that they could somehow monetize it in a way where it becomes a substantial side income, if not their biggest source of income, and then they can do whatever they want. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, yeah. And I think that's what we'll see more and more of like the pandemic threw everyone into this loop of, you know, and a lot of bands just didn't survive it too. But I think they, it just made everyone figure out, all right, if we do want to push forward with this, how are we going to adapt? And then Mm -hmm. we became used to like the live streams and stuff. I've seen people, I mean, maybe somewhat jokingly, but kind of say like, I'd kind of rather stay home and watch the live stream than go to the show now. Like that's what I'm used to. And I mean, I don't know. I, I couldn't do that. I, I've, I've watched a handful of live streams during the pandemic and they're, they were great for what they were, but nothing's going to be standing in that sweaty venue. You know? Absolutely. I completely agree. I watched some of them and it was more or less to support the band. And yeah. That was kind of my main objective, you know, and if I got a t-shirt like I did the Get Up Kids live streams and got a t-shirt with it, 
And it was about as much as I'd pay to go see a show. So it was win-win. Yeah. And I'm supporting the band, this band that I've loved for decades now. I'm happy to do that because I'm already saving a ton of money on the concerts I would have otherwise have been going to during the pandemic. Right. So yeah, I don't know. It could be a potential thing where bands can get creative and during downtimes, they can do stuff like that. Or even like setting up a Twitch or a Discord or a Patreon. I saw that May, they're doing a, a Patreon, which is a really great idea, I think, for a band like that. And it can just be another source of income, another creative way to connect with the fans. And I think that's all well and good. I was always perplexed during the pandemic at some of the bands that weren't doing it almost out of pride. I couldn't confirm that with anybody really, but I was kind of wondering what some of the bands were waiting for, but it's not that they all have to do it. It's just, I was surprised that so many of them didn't. Yeah, I I was... I think because the very first live stream I watched was dashboard and it was like a pay what you want thing. And mm-hmm. I thought this, this is great. Like I, you know, very atmospheric. It was just him in his house, a very cool, unique thing to see. And then I started seeing bands like Emery and Silverstein and then later like August Burns Red doing them. And I thought that is awesome, but I can't imagine watch like a heavy band didn't make as much sense to me. Yeah. The dashboard. Yeah. It just felt like, great. I can feel like I'm there and I can sit here and be comfortable with heavy bands. You're just like, how are, how do they have any energy? Like they're feeding off of nothing. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. That, was amazing to me and they those all those bands did awesome with them though they looked incredible i think the one i watched that had the most energy but it had to be the most awkward was newfound glory <laughs> oh how come, why was it awkward it wasn't awkward on their part i just i think they probably felt a little awkward with jordan being just the source of mega energy mm-hmm. such a charismatic frontman who's literally running laps on the stage most of the time to be doing that in an audience-less place venue yeah i mean i still enjoyed the live stream for what it was and i definitely look forward to seeing them in person again all those bands i look forward to seeing again but yeah i think some bands were just a little less cynical when it came to the live streams i liked what Mm -hmm. jimmy world did how they tried to make it more of a concert film and i think they did really well i think that was a smart decision on their part yeah what do you think the new amberlin is going to sound like uh great question I was, uh, as we were talking about cities and friendship and stuff, I really, really loved Lowborn, which was their final, their quote, final record. Yeah. And I realized that like going back through their discography that I never gave Vital much of a chance. And I don't know if that's, I don't know what fans think of that. If that's like, if people are in agreement with, I didn't didn't think it was bad or anything, but I I think I just missed the train on it. I'll be curious because Lowborn was all over the place in a great Mm -hmm. way. There was good throwback stuff. There was like heavy songs that they hadn't done before. I think they just, I think they were really throwing their hands up with Lowborn and like, let's try everything. So I don't know if they'll try to like hone it back to the more like radio, indie radio hits or Mm -hmm. maybe from Lowborn, they're like, yeah, we can get a little weird with it. I hope they get, I would rather have them get weird than like the indie radio stuff. I think I might feel the same way because I really enjoyed Lowborn and a lot of my friends didn't really care for that record. Really? I think one of the reasons that record is so eclectic too is because they were all recording in different areas. I think Mm -hmm. Steven, he recorded the vocals last and it was literally just him in a room with Aaron Sprinkle Hmm. and Nate recorded the drums with Matt Goldman. So he recorded the skeletons and then he sent it to Joey and Christian and they did all the music separately. And then they sent that to Steven and Aaron and Aaron, I believe mixed it. So I think that's one of the reasons they were so experimental with that record because they were just in different spots of the country, but I I wouldn't be surprised. Oh no, go ahead. Oh, I was going to, I want to say if I I might have the title wrong, 
uh, which song it was, but Dissenter maybe mm-hmm. he wrote with Josh Goggin from the chariot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just hearing like, yeah, cause I'm sure you guys know each other. You've been in the same world forever, but I would never put those styles together like Josh and Steven's voice or anything. Yeah. And it was just like the coolest, most chaotic song. And so, yeah, yeah. I hope I, again, I hope they get weird. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they will. I would say too, if you're wanting to really jump into vital, I would check out the deluxe version of that record okay because there's three or four b-sides and then they put basically they recorded another ep another three to four songs yeah i think the city is the title of one of those songs and it is a little bit more u2-esque i love vital personally i think that record's phenomenal yeah i really think someone anyone should have been a huge hit unfortunately it wasn't the fact they had neil avron mix it is really cool but the special edition it's like 21 songs or something i mean it's a breadth of work it's a lot of songs to kind of digest but they're all good they're all great including the b-sides yeah i don't think they can really write a bad song like even the, the songs that I know kind of get a lot of crap, like uh, uh, like Foreign Language, yeah. the first record. And then I knew I, you were going to say that one. <laughs> I, did, I was like, I, it's that. And then I know there was one or two maybe on New Surrender, which even saying the, even like calling these up in my brain, I'm like, oh, I totally forget about New Surrender. I haven't listened to that whole album in so long. Yeah. They, they just have, every album's good. I, Vital, like I said, I think I, there was just something where I wasn't as stoked on them at the time and for no reason really at all. So now it'll be nice. It'll feel like a brand new record I'll go back to. Absolutely, man. I've got nothing but respect for that band. Just mm-hmm. such a fantastic band. I'm trying to get one of those dudes on the podcast at some point. Who would you want to have on the most? Honestly, I'll talk to anybody. I like talking to people who, I mean, this is, I don't know if this is good or bad to say, but I like <laughs> asking people who don't get asked very often. You know, I would love to talk to Joey. I'd love to talk to Nate. I Mm -hmm. want to talk to Nate and figure out what it's been like transitioning to King State. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a pretty cool thing to be in a band of that size and that magnitude to start out doing it when you're 14 years old. Mm -hmm. And then for him to very elegantly transition to being a business owner down in Florida and create this cool thing that seems to just be blowing up and just continuing to thrive. I would really love to talk to him about that. You know, yeah, coffee. coffee Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're trying their hand at a couple of other things. They're brewing beer. They have food and stuff. They've got a lot of merch and things. I see people wearing their shirts quite often and then huh. obviously the cross-pollination of acceptance and amberlin talking to christian would be cool yeah did you yeah. get into loose talk at all dion and christian's band? yeah i dig it i like everything they do even joey's side project i'm forgetting the name of it but he put out a side project ep that i thought was really good i like anchor and braille i like yeah. all of the things steven's done yeah a great yeah. band joey's the only member i haven't interviewed because of loose talk because i had i had dion and christian on my podcast at the same time and and nate too like i would i mean steven of course is, is great but yeah nate is a talker and yeah and also all of them just super super polite Kind of. Yeah. I'm going to name drop for a second. <laughs> Good. <laughs> the first time I heard Amberlynn, they were opening up for Reliant K mm-hmm. and I was in a band called Game Time and we played two shows on that tour at the end of 2003. Mm-hmm. So that was one of their first tours. I think it might've been their second official tour as Amberlynn and they had mm-hmm. just gotten their deal with Tooth and Nail. I'm not even sure if their first record was out yet. It may have just come out, but that's where I met those guys initially. And I didn't mm-hmm. really listen to their record until Never Take Friendship Personal came out. I remember that's when I really latched onto the band. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I forgot about this band. And yeah. I heard Paper Thin Hymn. That was the oh. first song that was released. And I was, 
Yeah, still, yeah. still love that song. It's still so good. Surprised it didn't, that wasn't like their big, massive hit, you know? Yeah. I'm always so curious how people hear about bands that they end up being like obsessed with for this long, for a lot of years in life. I had a friend in high school who went to an Amberlin show and I'd never heard of him. But the next day at school, he, the, the big thing, he's like the one thing he remembered was that Steven swung the microphone and he'd never seen that before. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, that was enough for me to, to like go buy the album and all that. And then, yeah, <laughs> that's right. I think hearing, I remember watching the video for Ready Fuels also soon after that. And I feel like I've heard Steven joke about this, but like, he's so serious in that video. Yeah. In every video after that, like he's, he's just like, you know, having a great time and kind of smiling and jumping around. But something in that Ready Fuels video, I think somebody was like, all right, that looked tough. Like, make sure you look tough. <laughs> And I feel like he's laughed. He's like in interviews and stuff, talked about like, ah, just, just didn't work. That's so I, funny. Yeah. And I remember that was one thing I was turned like, off about that. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I think I've heard him in interviews be tongue in cheek about that video. He's, that's one of the reasons he's so charismatic. He's always smiling when he's singing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We could talk about Amberlynn for a <laughs> while, know, right? Episode, yeah. <laughs> Great band. <laughs> so the opening tour story in your book, Name Dropping, we have a connection and I wanted to oh, make yeah. sure I mentioned it. You mentioned Flee the Scene yeah. was on the first tour and The Wake, was that the name of the tour? Yep. Okay. And you were on tour with Fall Star? Yeah, correct. Okay, cool. Yeah. I am a personal trainer by trade. That's what I do for a living. And I mm-hmm. train RL. No way. He, yeah. He was a guitarist for Flee the Scene. Yeah. Him and Kim were the ones that we hung out with the most and bonded yeah. the most. And yeah, I haven't, I mean, I haven't seen or talked to them in, in years. I just added RL maybe like six months ago on Facebook. Oh, right. I don't know if you remember yeah. me. Yeah, but that's so funny. I don't feel like a lot of people, I feel like Flee the Sing was bigger than I knew, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't feel like they're brought up very often, like in these types of conversations about these bands. They were a big band in the Kansas City scene where I'm from. I'm actually yeah. in Lawrence, Kansas right now, which is oh. about 45 minutes from Kansas City. Awesome. And they were big for a while. I think they kind of started around the 2005, 2006 mark. Mm -hmm. and I was in a band from 2000 to 2004 so I knew of them I knew RL I would run into him after the shows flyering and stuff for our various projects and bands and things and I went to a couple of their shows but they were big in the local scene for sure and then they got signed to Face Down and that's when they went on tour and yeah I do think they garnered a pretty big audience for a little while I think Kim was maybe I couldn't name another she might have been the only female in face down history in a band. I don't know. I'm sure there's Oh others, yeah, maybe. But that was a yeah. big deal, I remember. Yeah. She's still in town. She used to work for one of the venues in Kansas City and I used to go there and pick up concert tickets because I didn't want to pay the fee and I would I always bet, see her there. I bet we have I bet if we figured it out, this would not be interesting to anyone else, but I bet we have a ton of mutual <laughs> friends because I I love Kansas City and used to take trips there just to like I would just time it around warp tour. Oh cool. Uh, yeah, and just and stay with friends and a ton of people. Like now, now I'm gonna, not gonna be able to remember the name of the venue. I feel like this is in Lawrence, at Mass Street. Uh huh. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the main strip, the main street in Lawrence, Kansas. What's the name of the the venue that's on that street? So there's yeah. three. There's the Bottleneck. There's mm-hmm. Liberty Hall, and there's the Granada. Granada. Yes. Yeah. My my really good friend Drew worked at the Granada. Okay. Uh, Drew. Yeah. And I would go there just to like, I'd meet up with her, go to shows with Granada and then, you know, do work the next day. And I love Kansas city. So many good bands from there too. For real. Yeah. A band that gets brought up a lot is the get up kids and Matt Pryor. He still lives in Lawrence. Like we used to go before this was before the pandemic, we would go to get brunch and stuff on Sundays. And we'd almost always go to the same Mm -hmm. place. He and his family were at really. Yeah. And it's funny. I don't want to fanboy out, you know, 37 year old male, but yeah. Hometown (laughs) hero. 
I know John Nolan was there for a while too from Taking Back Sunday. I think he's still here. He still posts photos from Lawrence and stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah, he may not be here now. They might be rehearsing for tour and stuff, sure. but he was here a couple weeks ago. Oh, that's so funny. I Not too long ago, maybe four or five months ago now, had his wife Camille on, on my podcast because she put out an EP during the pandemic. And I was like, man, just like this oh, whole cool. family is, yeah, incredibly, incredibly talented. That's cool. What's Drew's last name? The guy that works at Granada? Uh, it was a girl, Drew Willie. Oh, okay, cool. I yeah. was going to say, maybe I, I know her. I, I know a couple of people that work for the Granada. I mean, this was like now almost 10 years ago, but. Okay, cool. <laughs> cool. Yeah, it's still there. They've been shut down this whole time because of the really? pandemic, but I think they're going to open up soon, which is cool. I love that venue. I, I, the last time I was there, we saw the Rocket Summer with States, the scene aesthetic. Yeah. Fun. Really nice. Like we have a ton of venues in Portland too, of course. But I feel like the staple that I tend to think of any music venue is that it's kind of gross. So yeah. I feel like anytime I see a nice one like the Granada, you're like, oh, look at this. Like, yeah. why, can't, why can't we have this standard over here? <laughs> I definitely know what you mean. It's like when you walk into a venue you've never been to and it's halfway clean, sticks out in your memory. The Varsity, where I saw mm-hmm. the Acceptance play, that's a really cool yeah. venue. Yeah, I had never been there before. We'd never that's played there or anything. Course. But yeah, that's cool, man. So yeah, Warp Tour is a good one. We should definitely talk about Warp Tour. Yeah. Tell me about about your experience in a 15 passenger van <laughs> oh man yeah i the, the joke now because I'm, I'm still really close with most of those those guys in that band and Fallstar is still going strong they just put out a record this year they're on face down because a lot of those guys are now have kids and, and a tour like that probably won't happen again the reminiscing just about like what were we thinking and like obviously that's what bands do like it wasn't anything out of the ordinary but you definitely think back to like how did i ever sleep on you know the concrete in a walmart parking lot for weeks on end like Mm -hmm. yeah not not only because i wasn't i you know i wasn't in the van i didn't have to be there but i wanted that like you know i wanted a tour experience if it was available to me and yeah you just whenever whenever you you get to a town and maybe you knew someone somebody in the band would know someone that lived there and you know, they'd hop in your van to go get dinner or something. And I think every time we got that outside perspective from someone, that's when we realized how bad and weird it was. Because somebody would hop in the van and be like, all right, first of all, it smells so bad in here, guys. I don't know what you're doing. We're like, well, there's seven men in here that are like sweating and farting all day, of course. It's awful. <laughs> and haven't showered in a week or two also. And then when, you know, friends would ask like, well, where are you staying tonight? And we're like, well, we got to find a Walmart, probably rolling about 2 a.m., <laughs> sleep in the van or, you know, if you want to stretch out a little bit, you can sleep under the van or on top of it or next to it. So yeah, overall, I wouldn't trade any of those tour stories or any of those tours for anything, but those were for the most part when I was early in mid twenties. And just thinking about that now, like is so cringy just to, you know, if someone offered me that tomorrow, it could be the biggest, it could be my favorite band, you know, the tours mm-hmm. in a 15 passenger van. And I think I'd have to be like, oh, I can't. I can't fall apart on day one now. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely a job for younger people in general. (laughs) I definitely couldn't do it as a 37 year old. I'm just way too much of a whiny baby these days. There's just no way. The first time I got got offered to do like a full warp tour, I was like, man, like three years ago, three or four years ago, this would have been just like the biggest dream come true. And I would have, you know, jumped all over it. And I remember being like, I don't even feel bad that I'm like, I can't do that. (laughs) There's no way. Warped is grueling. We mm-hmm. did it a couple times and it was really rough and we did it in a 15 passenger van. And yeah. there was a period of time where I think it was 2003 when we did it and we had a couple extra people in the van than we normally had mm-hmm. because they were part of the stage. So they set uh, up the stage. It was yeah. one of the last years where they had a bunch of really small side stages mm-hmm. because in 2004, Kevin essentially cut the roster in half. 
there was 150 bands on any given day in 2003. And then the following year, there were 75. And the reason that was, the reason I even know that number is because in 2003, you had a lot of younger bands that were essentially sneaking onto Warp Tour. Right. And they were fairly unchecked. So they would cause a lot of trouble and they would steal golf carts and they would steal mm-hmm. food and they would break in and they'd get into these altercations with security and everything. And I guess Kevin Lyman got frustrated with it and he said, We're not doing this anymore. Wow. Kind of just ruined it for everybody at that point. I didn't, yeah. But, I didn't know bands were like sneaking on. I mean, I knew there were yeah. bands that were like, following the tour trying to get on but i remember in 2001 i was 17 and i was filling in for a friend's band and we had a couple days off and so we decided that we'd go to warp tour because it kind of coincided with our run in the midwest Mm -hmm. and we went to a warp tour in arkansas and we snuck in through the gate somewhere we got there really really early and just walked in Mm-hmm. And nobody questioned us, of course, but we were hanging out and there was a band called 10 times a day mm-hmm. and they were essentially following the tour. They were doing the same thing. They'd set up their tent and they would literally just make shift play. You know, they had yeah. like these two little JBL speakers and they'd bring like traveling amps and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so we were talking to them and we mentioned the fact that we were on tour and we didn't have a show that day. And they go, well, do you want to play the tent? And so we literally, the two bands, we just played in this tent on the 2001 warp tour. Dang. And so I think that's kind of the thought process for a lot of bands. They were probably hearing that bands were able to do that. And that's what was happening. Did you ever see that documentary, uh, No Room for Rockstars? Yeah. Yeah. I just rewatched that the other day. I, I remember I had to review it when it came out. I don't know. It probably came out like 2011 or so, mm-hmm. but it's on, I think I found it on YouTube. For anyone that hasn't seen it, like it's, they follow basically the headliner on down to a band called Forever Came Calling that mm-hmm. is just, yeah, following the tour, having, selling CDs outside for five bucks, like just hustling like crazy. Yeah. And uh, they end up, I think, playing one date at the very end. And I think they played the following year and stuff. But that was really eye-opening. But then to shift gears to it was Never Shout Never, it was kind mm-hmm. of the big deal at the time. But yeah, I just, I rewatched that and I was like, I, it makes me miss Warped. It makes me like a little sad for some of these bands also. Yeah. But Warped is just, it was such a like, I never did like the whole thing at all, which was, I mean, it was like a, like, oh, wouldn't that be amazing? But in the end, I was okay with it, but it's just such its own animal of things. Mm-hmm. Like I love that Kevin talks about how like they're, that's the whole thing. No room for rock stars. Like they have to walk through the crowds to like get to catering. Like you can't, the best you could do at hideout, I guess would just be stay on your bus all day, but who wants to mm-hmm. do that? So he, sure. he created such a cool environment for a lot of reasons, but I love that that was one of them. Yeah, it was a special thing, an institution for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of my best tour memories were on Warp Tour. Good times. We never did the whole thing either. We just we were lucky in the fact that he gave us 20 dates in 2002. And then we played three weeks in 2003 on this little stage. And we had a couple of people who were running the stage. It was, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure the person that put it together was a female. And I can't remember her name, but it was pretty cool. Like, yeah. I mean, she was doing the thing and she organized the whole thing. And I remember mm-hmm. under oath, this is mm-hmm. pre Spencer. They got under oath to play this little side mm-hmm. stage. And that's actually where they broke up was on Warp Tour. That's where their previous oh. singer, Dallas, he just yeah. exploded. Yeah. And I remember yeah, they were in our van traveling <laughs> with us. Really? Yeah. Not yeah. Under Oath, but the people running the stage. Yeah. Under Oath has some bad luck with Warp Tour, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For sure. I remember watching them play one time and then I think it was the next day that it was either right on stage or right before they got on stage, Dallas kind of blew up and that was the end. 
Wow. And I remember talking to Tim afterwards and he just said, yeah, we're going home. <laughs> oh my gosh. I and can then, imagine as a young band having that happen at Warped, like thinking this is the yeah. biggest opportunity we've gotten. Oh yeah. yeah. It was crazy too, because within a year and a half, they were the biggest band on the planet right. on the, in the underground. Right. So you've worn a lot of hats in the music community. You've been <laughs> a manager, a publicist, a music journalist, a tour manager, a booking agent, all of the above. I was literally looking at your LinkedIn profile. It had all of the things that you've done previously. Mm -hmm. What is working with bands in so many different capacities taught you? Yeah, I think Fallstar was, I, I tend to say Fallstar was certainly like the first like quote real band as far as like wanting to make it and wanting to push forward that I ever worked with. And Chris, their singer, him and I, I think just sort of partnered up and was like, all right, so we both, we just had really similar backgrounds, really similar taste. And it was like, well, you're in the band, so clearly you care a lot about this. And then I, I feel like I came along was just like, I'm trying to figure out how I can possibly work in this industry. It was almost like, can I use your band as the guinea pig? At the same time, we were both doing that. We were both trying to figure out the best way to you know, market the band, the best way to book tour, like figure all this stuff out for a band that was so small. How do you really get that springboard? Like, is it just you know, an overnight thing where you sent your demo to the right label, you know, like none of that's yeah. real as you know. So I think both of us just kind of had this vehicle to be in the vehicle, being the band to just say, all right, well, let's just experiment. Let's see what works. Let's see what doesn't. And I, yeah, like I, and I still love that band. They're still honestly probably my favorite band, but I think what it's taught me the most was I, I made so many good friendships through not only that band, but through so many others through touring and through interviewing musicians that the whole, like that cliche thing from almost famous, everyone always says is to not make friends with the people, with the rock stars, you know, with the people you're talking to. And after a while I was like, that's impossible for me. Like, I want to know, I want to, if I get to sit down with, you know, Stephen Christian, I can't have it be like static. I don't want to just be like asking questions with no personality and just, mm -hmm. all right, thanks. And walk out, walk out of the room. I'm like, no, these are, I'm, I'm sitting here because I worked hard to get in front of this person and it's someone I admire. So mm -hmm. if it, you know, if something like that can end in a friendship or just like a good working relationship, then awesome. I think that's been the biggest thing I've gotten out of all of these jobs is just the people that I've gotten to know. Sure. And yeah. wearing other hats, you know, you're not just a music journalist where you're mm -hmm. trying to have this unvarnished, unbiased opinion of yeah. this person. I know some people that are in journalism and even when they're supposed to be as objective as possible, it's very difficult, you know, yeah. because we're, at the end of the day, we're human beings and we have thoughts and perceptions yeah. and opinions so yeah. it's it's more connected because you're a music fan but also because you did so many other things with these bands yeah and i think that's that's probably the difference too i mean if i was into journalism just in a broader sense and then focused in on music that would have been different but i i feel like i loved music and was obsessed with music and wanted to figure out my best way into that industry and i also love to write and so it just became like all right if i can combine these things figure out a way for this hobby this interest to play into what i want to do in music then i will great i'll get in this way yeah. so i think that's that's why yeah i never had any sort of like i don't i don't want to actually know these people or i want to stay i mean it sounds funny but like i want to stay unbiased like there there were plenty of times where i could have talked about more let's say in an article more that i saw while i was on the bus but why burn that bridge? Why, why go, yeah. Why go write about something negative or, you know, somebody doing something they shouldn't do. 
obviously there's boundaries to that as well. I never turned, you know, a blind eye to something serious, but right. you know, if it was, if it was, you know, smoking weed or something like that, like I could have included like a little thing about that and I could have made maybe the article more interesting, but like, why screw that guy over? You know, why say something negative? I'm never going to get an interview with that person again, then like, I'm right. just going to burn my own bridge. What's, what's the point? So. Right. My- and that's probably the tougher part when it comes to being a journalist in general, because there's probably that internal dialogue where you're thinking, well, I can spice this up a little bit, but then you're thinking, well, wait a minute, what's the longer play here? Do I want to burn a bridge or or do I want to create, like you said, a good, Mm -hmm. meaningful working relationship, one that I might be able to tap into later? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing too, is I, maybe the third or fourth time I interview that person, they'll open up more about this thing or that thing. Like I was always way more about developing a good relationship, I think. The fact that I could, you know, go to a second or third interview with someone and they remember my name or at least remember, you know, our first chat or something, that was always like the biggest privilege. Yeah. You know, for some of these people that do press so often to have someone remember you at all is always a good feeling, but let alone someone that you're like, oh, I listen to you every day. And now you're like, oh, hey, Jameson, good to see you. And you're like, oh, Right. It's crazy. Yeah. It humanizes people, you know, that's what Mm -hmm. this podcast is essentially what it's done for me. It's reminded me that these people at the end of the day, they're human beings. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of their art and I appreciate their art. I like when people are enthusiastic about art in general. I like when people like things. Mm -hmm. It's always cool to talk to these people who like things too. You know, they're not incredibly cynical and nihilistic. They do actually enjoy things. So it just humanizes them a little bit. That seems to be a common theme. I'm nearing the 50th episode, but Christy, she's a great example. She's somebody I followed for a while and I just Mm -hmm. really wanted to have a talk with her about all the things she's got going on. Yeah. And Christy, you could talk to her hours also. Yeah. Anytime we would call each other to catch up or just, you know, to discuss something that was like too much for text, it, it turned into at least an hour or something. So no, nice. she's, yeah, she is the best. That's rad. I'll say that there's people too, that some of my favorite people to interview are the ones that get that it's not like that back and forth Q and A. I know that like most podcasters and, and myself included, like that's kind of become a cliche thing to say is like, this isn't an interview. We're just like two friends talking, but that's not always, that's not always smooth when you're technically talking to a stranger, you know, they don't, right. you're a stranger to them. You're sitting there like, I know everything about you, Amberlynn, but you know, they don't know you, yeah. but somebody like a name dropping again, uh, I'm a huge fan of dashboard confessional mm-hmm. as well. And even, I think even my very first interview with Chris Caraba, which was just like a phone interview the first time I would say, I would comment on something or ask something and he'd be like, yeah, you know, like, I never thought of that. Well, well, what did you think when I, when I like put this album out, what do you, and the fact that he was like bouncing stuff back and really taking it to heart. And like, you know, I was so caught off guard and hopefully I gave a good answer, but just so thoughtful about, he could just easily just be like, yeah, I did this and that was great. And I got a bunch of fans. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. to comment on something that I observed and to be like, oh, well, that's yeah. What, you know, as a fan of mine, well, what did you think when, when this album came out? Because I thought it was like this and you're saying it's like, like that was such an honor. So any, anybody that you talk to, I think that's like shows any sign of interest of what you actually think as an interviewer is like, yeah. Fan for life after that. Absolutely. Yeah. It just connects you that much more and they just become that much more authentic. And Mm -hmm. there's an expression of humility there. This person's like, what did you think? You know, Mm -hmm. what did you think about my art? Which is literally the most vulnerable thing to ask a person. Right. What did you think of my art? That's such a difficult question for some people to 
even ask. You just have to have very minimal expectations, you know, because yeah. putting your art out there can be a scary proposition. It's probably a little bit easier for somebody like Dashboard because he's very well liked by yeah, you know, millions I mean, of people. Yeah. And you want, so yeah, at first you think, well, what, you know, why do you care what I think? Clearly you're doing fine. You know, clearly you yeah. have a lot of fans, but yeah, I think that's, that just, yeah, you're right. It shows a lot of humility to, yeah, to say I did a thing. Yeah. It seems to be going well, but you, you appear to be like a real fan. It seems like, you know what you're talking about. So why don't you tell me what you think of this? Like maybe that opinion is more valuable than, you know, the fans that maybe like kiss someone's butt about everything they do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and in many ways it can be in life. It's like when you start a business, you mm -hmm. want people to tell you the truth. You don't want somebody to sugarcoat literally everything when you're spending $5,000 on door hangers and half the words are misspelled or something. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we need, we need constructive criticism yes. occasionally. I also saw that you worked for Substream magazine. Yeah. Yeah. I was there managing AMP. editor. Yeah. For Substream, I, I freelanced for them for a couple of years and then was their managing editor for about two years. And then yeah, AMP and Adobe HM freelance for all those as well. Cool. What years did you work for Substream? Um, I think I got that in, I started in, I think 2011. Okay, I know, cool. I know I was, I was done there near the end of 2013. So yeah, I think about early 2011. Nice. Did you work there with Scott Heisel? He was two after me. So that oh, actually okay. my friend Drew that I mentioned earlier, she took over for me when I left. And then I think Scott was right after her. Wow. But I knew, okay. I knew, I knew Scott just, you know, through mutual friends and through uh, just obviously knowing him when he was at alternative press and stuff, but yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. I was just curious. My second band was called the American life. Substream was really kind to us. They did an interview and a spotlight on us. They were really cool with highlighting smaller bands and things. Yeah. And our manager at the time, he was really hustling. He was kind of like you, he was young and he was hungry and he wanted to make a name for himself in managing bands. And he really proved himself. I mean, he was a 19 year old kid. We were in our early to mid twenties and he managed to facilitate a lot of really cool things and opportunities and got us in a few publications and things and what substream was, was one of them what was his name his name was alex left and he does something completely unrelated now i think okay. we were the experiment and then i'm pretty sure yeah. he went to college after that and started oh, okay. doing other stuff i think he's in marketing now oh, i talk to him occasionally but i think the tenacity that he had will probably be good at anything that he puts his mind yeah. to yeah substream was so good about that i had always wanted to work for ap of course that was like the dream but substream was so great because it because yeah because they gave us so much I, when I was there, like I essentially chose most of the content per issue and they were just so cool with, yeah, okay, that's a band that, you know, doesn't seem to be that huge or anything, but if you believe in them and you think there's potential over the next couple of years, we want to be a magazine that champions that and then also is putting in an investment towards what you think could be something later, you know? That's smart. Strike the iron before the band mm -hmm. just blows up and then you already established a relationship with them. Do you remember by chance who, when you were in... So you, were you in a print issue of Substream? Yeah, we were in a couple. Do you remember who was on the cover? I just wonder if we overlapped or if it was an issue I did. It was the late 2000s. I think it was 2009. I want to say the main was on the, the cover. Oh, okay. I believe it was the main. I don't know. I still have them at my parents' house. I've got a box full of like all the <laughs> stuff too. we had, you know, all the little trinkets of time mm -hmm. capsule band stuff. I need to pull those out. I have one of them online somewhere. I've taken a picture of it. Mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> we're all wearing neon because oh, really? neon was neon was really popular then <laughs> oh yeah no that's that's what you do in the yeah the late 2000s oh yeah so you're an author now congratulations <laughs> thank you what made you yeah absolutely man what made you decide to write a book because it's a massively huge endeavor <laughs> yeah i and i did not know that starting out um <laughs> 
No, I had published like a short novel before this, like self-published just as a thing that I wrote. I started writing in college. That was a fictional story. But I remember like I just like self-published that. I really didn't like tell anyone. It was more of let's it's this is a cool accomplishment to say I did this. And it was like good to kind of get it out of my brain and off my plate to figure out if I wanted to do something more serious next. And I really just started writing down some of these stories because I was starting to forget them. (laughs) I really thought at the most, maybe I'll put these up like on a blog for fun or I'll just share them with the people that were there because every time we hang out it's kind of like oh I don't really remember that or I don't remember that detail and I was like before my memory totally goes I'll start writing some of these things down and after a while I thought I would love to have all of these tour stories and interview stories written down and if I can find any sort of common thread to make it a book wouldn't that be cool I just I have a whole bookshelf that's like books about like the emo scene and stuff that's come out in the last few years where it's like the people that lived it and were champions of those bands are now a little bit older and doing projects like a book Mm -hmm. And I thought that's, yeah, I just thought that's so amazing because when I was a kid, I would have loved if I could go to the store and get a book about Dashboard or about Saves the Day. And instead I'd go to the bookstore and it was like, the best we could do is the Beatles. And I remember thinking that gap of time, like, why aren't there books about stuff that happened in the last like five or 10 years? Like, why do we only go all the way back to something like that or the eighties? I would say, yeah, maybe like seeing something like Motley Crue would be like the newest of that type of book. And I was like, that's so long ago. So now there's all these books out by like ex like AP writers and ex tour managers and merch guys, all this stuff. And I just, I wanted to be on that shelf as well. And I thought I, I have the content. I have enough of this stuff to where so it's, and it's like a little bit different. It's, it's a mix of Christian and non as far as starting mm-hmm. out in that part of the industry and then moving on to other stuff and then figuring out both sides of that industry, how they played into personal stuff for me, like what I think about religion and creativity. And yeah, so that's, that's sort of the through line, but I had no idea it would be this big of a thing for sure. Mm -hmm. The fact that it's out now for pre-order and will be available this next week is still super surreal. It's really, really cool. And I'm also really excited to kind of like the other one, have it off my brain plate as far as I've been thinking about this and working on this for the last two and a half years. Once that slate is wiped clean, what can I do next? I haven't thought about that next thing. So I'm excited. Yeah. I'll bet, man. And congratulations. Just the idea of writing a book, it's an incredible undertaking. It's one of those things too, where the whole time you're doing it, you're kind of second guessing yourself a little bit. I think most people feel that way. Mm -hmm. And it can have so many iterations as you're editing it yourself. And there's a point where you probably have to not self-edit too much and really just try to enter that flow state where you're writing consistently. Just so you have the amount of content that can go inside a book because it's a lot of content. Oh, yeah. You can't second guess your way through the whole thing because it'll take you a decade to write the whole thing. So Mm -hmm. I got to commend you for just being able to write (laughs) it. And I actually had Mike Henneberger, Renaissance. Yeah. And his book's great. And I can't wait to read the rest of yours. The title is really rad. And I just wanted to ask you a quick question about (laughs) name dropping. I love the subtitles that can definitely give you a glimpse into what the book's about. (laughs) Seeking creative truth through Trinity altruism and punk rock. Did I get that correct? That is correct. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And what do you mean by, I'm sure I'll find out when I read the book, but (laughs) I'm just curious, what do you mean by trendy altruism? Yeah, the title is definitely like a little tongue in cheek, especially because of the punk rock part. The original title I said, I said heavy metal instead. And Mm -hmm. I thought maybe that's too specific. So punk definitely refers to like a broader thing. I'm not just talking about, you know, the descendants or something, Uh, (laughs) but 
trendy altruism was because I was just continually wanting to find ways to be more and more embedded, I think, in the music industry. And at the same time, I was getting into like the idea of wanting to work for nonprofits. And I didn't really know how that looked or what really what to do. But then there was this huge surge of nonprofits in the music scene. I'd say starting with To Write Love on Our Arms and then mm-hmm. lots of other ones I talk about in the book. But looking back, I was like, man, I feel like I worked for like four or five of those really those really big names, probably everything except for Hooray for Boobies, which that just got brought up. <laughs> I got brought up the other day and I was like, oh, I forgot that, that everyone had that bracelet. Um, yeah. And the t-shirt too. I had a free yeah. shirt from Warp Tour. Yeah. The t-shirt too. I, I just, yeah, I, I interned it to write love for, it was so brief. It was only there a few months, but it, the trendy part just being that there, yeah, this burst of these nonprofits that had to do with the music scene, but the topics didn't, but you had bands repping, you know, try love shirts every day on Warp Tour, Switchfoot, Under Oath, Paramore, Evanescence. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it, it was just a really cool thing to see those two worlds go together and figure out the best way to work. And I don't, I, I definitely don't want to say trendy in any sort of negative way. At the same time, I, I remember working events for Trite Love and bands would come up and ask for shirts and then walk away going, what is this again? And so I was like, uh, oh yeah, there's, there's like, it's cool, but people don't even know what it is. Like they just know yeah. I should wear the shirt. So I, I just try to explore that dynamic a little bit in there. Okay. Yeah. No, I like that. You're right. I mean, I think people would see Haley wearing to write love on her arms. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden you'd see another band member wearing it, but you never really bother to look up to see what it's actually about. So you just, yeah. you like the logo. So you're thinking, Oh, I could wear a shirt like that. Yeah. And hopefully like, even if people didn't know, like even if a kid bought a shirt, cause it was cool. Like hopefully, you know, they figured it out later. They went home and Googled yeah. it or something like that's, that's probably the best that the organization can hope for. Sure. But it, but it was very, very weird that those two worlds collided and that shirts like that were, I mean, they were designed by someone who worked for Hurley. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it, it made sense that they were cool and yeah. trending, but just, yeah, that's just such a funny thing. There were bands wearing these shirts because of that and had no idea anything behind it. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. And hooray for boobies. We were just mentioning that. I'm yeah. sure there was some tongue in cheek marketing going on that day yeah. when they developed that nonprofit for sure. Oh Yeah. <laughs> And it's, it's so imagine. smart. I mean, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's very cool. You said it took you two and a half years to write the book. I think it probably took, well, so when I, when I said two and a half years, I signed with my publisher almost two and a half years ago now, obviously the pandemic didn't help the process, but sure. I think I probably overall spent probably a year and a half doing the actual writing. Yeah. And you talked about this too. Like, I mean, there was of course a ton of self-doubt in there and, you know, I could be halfway through a story and be like, does anyone care? Does anyone want to read this? Probably not. And put it down. Sure. Um, but at the same time, I was still working for, I was still freelancing. I was still doing my podcast that I still have now called Godspeed. So stories were still accumulating. So mm-hmm. I, I felt like I couldn't, I eventually I had to, yeah, I had to stop and say, okay, I could add to this forever uh, yeah. as long as I'm still doing this stuff. <laughs> That's why the, probably why the book is as long as it is. It probably, it, the first draft was probably not 270 pages, but. That's okay. Yeah. You can write part two. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping. I'll be for. waiting. It'll be awesome, man. <laughs> I remember one time my therapist, she said, it might be a good, helpful exercise for you to write out chronologically your entire life and mm-hmm. kind of write down, pinpoint all of the very noteworthy things that have happened to you. Yeah. Mention that you were in a band, mention when you were going on tour, mention how old you were, what, how, what you were thinking at the time, how you're feeling. And then you have sort of this chronological view of your life to reflect back on all these cool things that you've done, these noteworthy things, which I'm sure you've experienced this before. I feel like when I tell people that 
I was 18 and I hopped in a 15 passenger van and we toured the country for months at a time. And I would leave my parents and I didn't have a cell phone at the time. It's a really compelling thing. You know, everything that you write about in the book, it's compelling. Those tour stories are compelling to people that have not done it or maybe haven't entered that world. And then it's also compelling for people who went through it because they can relate to it. It hits that nostalgia button. Yeah. I remember sleeping in Walmart (laughs) parking lots, you know, like that was the best time of my life. And, and I think that's probably, if nothing else, that's something that you've done. You've basically created a bit of a chronological order of these really noteworthy things in your life. And you can always reflect back on that, which is really cool. It's like when a musician writes music, oftentimes they are writing it for themselves first and foremost, you know, Mm -hmm. and then hoping that other people resonate with it and relate with it. So it's cool what you've done. I mean, the fact that you've written almost a 300 page book of experiences of your <laughs> life, that's pretty cool to have. Yeah. And you can show your family that someday. Yeah. That's, I keep thinking, yeah, regardless, you know, if it, if it comes out next week and everyone hates it, you know, I still have this, uh, this record of these things. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, a, a friend of mine, when I, when I first sent it to actually Chris from Fallstar, he, cause he was there for a lot of the stories. He was also, he also did a lot of my photography for interviews. So he was not only there for the Fallstar stuff, but for a lot of the other stories. And he's like, man, I just, I forgot about so many of these. Or like, I didn't know that like that happened later. I thought that was just like a run of the mill evening. And he was like, this is kind of like, like your life's work up till this point. And I was like, oh, like that, that was so big. It was such a big thing to hear from someone. Yeah. I mean, a compliment, but also just like, oh, I didn't, I never thought of it like that to say like life's work till now. Like, <laughs> oh, that is big. It's a segment of your life for sure. An important one, you know, and what's cool too, is it means something to him too. You know, you've documented this process and you've documented these stories and he's attached to those stories. So he can reflect back on them through your eyes too, and get a full recount of it, which is pretty cool. I was curious. I saw the section in your book where you mentioned a bunch of books and authors Mm -hmm. and you mentioned Stephen Pressfield, which I'm a huge fan of. Yes. He's one of my favorite authors. How has his wisdom and his ideas influenced the work that you do and doing the work? Yeah, I feel like I recommend him the most to anyone that does anything creative at all to read The Artist's Journey and then The War of Art as well. Mm-hmm. I think I feel like I, I keep both those books on my shelf as as just like a boost that works pretty much every time. Oh, yeah. Um, to, to get to do a really big name drop in both our minds. I was he was kind enough to answer me on Instagram the other day and we went back and forth for a little bit. And somebody gave me The War of Art a couple of years ago. And I, for whatever reason, I think just because the book looked old, I assumed it was written a long time ago and this guy wasn't around anymore. So it was really cool to know like, oh, no, he's, he's still going strong. Yeah. But I think, yeah, there's there's just some magic in those pages, I think. For anyone that hasn't read or seen those books, you can read them in about 45 minutes. They're very short. But at the same time, anytime I've read them, I'm like, I don't, I don't want to just cruise through it to say that I finished it. There's just almost every page. When I start, I remember I started highlighting stuff and then I was like, I got to stop because it's pretty much every page that I'm just like this. Oh, and this, oh, that's an even better idea. <laughs> so there's yeah. just some sort of energy and magic, I think, in those books that boost my creativity and, and encourage me every single yeah. time. And you're right. He is still kicking. He was just on the Tim Ferriss show maybe a couple months ago. Oh, well. So I don't know if you listen to his podcast, but it's really good. It's a fantastic episode. I'm trying to think if I, yeah, right here. Bam. I'm not a fraud. I got the same one, same cover. Oh, nice. And I'm kind of like you, I read it. I revisit like every year, every other year. And I've definitely written notes in this thing, but yeah, an amazing book for creatives of any type for sure. And what's crazy too, is he started out as a fiction writer. Yeah. Didn't he write that after Bagger Vance? I, yeah, yeah. 
which yeah. it, and I've never even I, I it made me want to go rent Beggar Vance because I don't think I'd ever seen it. But yeah. yeah, two very different things going on with him. Right, exactly. And he still writes books. I think he just wrote mm-hmm. another one. The War of Art is, I think, one of his most popular nonfiction. And that's the one I continuously go back to, but I need to check out more of his stuff. I've never actually seen that movie. Yeah. I I heard the movie wasn't great. I heard the movie wasn't very reminiscent of the book. They kind of took liberties with it, but I could be mistaking that. Honestly, I could be completely wrong when it comes to that, but I repeat to myself sometimes just got to keep doing the work. Yep. Keep doing the work. It's guys like him. And I'll say to like another author, Rob Bell and Elizabeth mm-hmm. Gilbert. Elizabeth Gilbert wrote, I haven't read Eat, Pray, Love, but she wrote a book called Big Magic, which yeah. I put right up there with War of Art as far as just, there's just this confidence in those writers. Whereas I think anyone creative for the most part has a ton of doubts. Like the ones that you know was saying earlier, is anyone going to read this? Who even cares? I'm just wasting my time. They address yeah. that stuff. They, you know, they don't say, oh, that's not real. Get over it. They address it, but there's just this confidence that they have of like, almost just saying like, yeah, well, you know, you can think that, are you going to let it stop you from creating the thing though? And you're like, well, no. Okay. Well, great. Let's, let's keep going then. Yeah. Or, yeah. Moving on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, don't like you, you feel dumb in a good way after hearing some of it. Cause you're just like, yeah, like, why am I, this is time that I could spend finishing that book or finishing that album. And instead I'm wondering, I'm going 10 steps further and saying, is anyone even going to like it when I'm done? It's like, well, you mm-hmm. haven't even done it. Mm-hmm. So at least at least do the thing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. Yeah, and I already read a chapter and I liked it, so I can guarantee you I'm gonna like <laughs> what's in the remaining chapters for sure. And I'm gonna resonate with tons of it. Yeah, I love that book too. Big Magic, it's a great mm-hmm. one. She's great. Yeah, Elizabeth Gilbert. She's also been on the Tim Ferriss show a couple of times. Tim Ferriss, he has a quote. You can tell I'm a massive <laughs> Tim Ferriss fanboy. You should check out his books if you haven't. They're behemoths, but they're very good. It's not his quote. It's a quote that he's heard before, but I've heard him say it a bunch of times mm-hmm. about writing a book. He says, write a book because you can't not write the book. You feel compelled. It's within you. You have to do it. Yeah. And I would imagine that's what it was like for you. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was something I learned on the first one, even just on this little novel that I put out first was just that feeling of like, if I don't get this out, it's going to be stuck in there. It feels, it feels like a thorn in your side, really. Of just, even if I, even if I put it out and no one ever reads it, whatever, like it's, there's just something about clearing your plate of your current yeah. project, clearing your, your plate of your current project. But also Elizabeth Gilbert talks a lot about this, just like, whether or not ideas are meant for you or not. So if, mm-hmm. if you read Big Magic, the biggest thing that stuck with me is she kind of talking about almost the idea of ideas being kind of floating through the air and will attach to you for a little bit. And, you know, you might write half of that book, half of that idea, and then be stuck. And that idea might detach from you and mm-hmm. attach to someone else, which is like scary and also like good. Like I'm not actually responsible. Like the yeah. idea chooses you kind of thing. And I thought I'm going to choose to believe that concept because that, that sure. alleviates a lot of pressure for me. Absolutely. And the idea that ideas are like a bus, yep. you know, there's another bus coming behind it. Mm-hmm. So, and it's, it's like, sometimes the bus needs to get away from you a little bit and then it circles back, yeah. you know, like opportunity at the same time, these ideas, they come to you and you may not necessarily be in a place where you can really realize them yet, but they may yeah. come back around and then you really are in a better spot to do that. Well, and, and how inherently unique your idea is going to be. Like when I was sending out query letters for my first book, somebody uh, of rejection wrote back and said something about like, the advice I always give is like, do you feel like you were born to tell this story? 
And I was like, ah, that's like a little cliche. I don't really, I don't really know what I think of that. And then the more, <laughs> the more I thought about it, I was like, yeah, because nobody else can tell this. Like my, my first book was very much based on people I knew and experiences and stuff. And then, and you're like, oh yeah, nobody else has had that. So I'm the only person that can create it. And that's, that's really, I think that's a really intoxicating and like kind of romantic idea. Absolutely. That's why writers write. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a fairly romantic practice for sure. (laughs) Well, cool, my man. This has been a lot of fun. I feel like we could talk for another hour and a half for real. All about Amberlynn. No, we could do literally an entire (laughs) episode on Amberlynn. So what do you think of this song and this part and this (laughs) (laughs) B-side? Speaking of which, man, dude, that band, how did they have such amazing B-sides? I don't really understand it. Because usually the, the stuff that you throw away for the B-side, that's not as good with, as what's on the record. Right. But then you hear a song like The Haunting mm-hmm. or Downtown Song or Uncanny. And I'm just like, wow, these are so good. Yeah. You want to ask them, why did, why did you think this was a B-side? Yeah, yeah. I do. I do. I want to ask them exactly those questions. <laughs> those really, really small ones. Dude, if you're bored, you should listen to, I interviewed Aaron Sprinkle. Oh, nice. Yeah, you should yeah. listen to that episode. It's really oh, fascinating. Yeah. I didn't see that when I was scrolling through your episodes. So I'll write it down. Yeah, it was a bit ago. It was probably back in February or March, I believe. But okay. I really wanted to reach out to him and interview him. And he obliged. And it was so rad. And I asked him lots of questions about acceptance and Amberlynn. And <laughs> it was really cool. He's a super dude. And I'm looking forward to his new music because he's got some stuff coming out. Is that just like under his name or under what was his band there? He's got a bunch of projects. He's working for a company now that does music that you can choose for your projects, like your independent films or your podcast or commercials or other musical projects. And he composes under a lot of different monikers and things. Mm -hmm. And if you go to his website, I believe it's AaronSprinkleMusic.com and you sign up for his email newsletter, he's going to be enticing fans to come check his new stuff out if they'll sign up for his newsletter. And I think he's going to eventually put out a record but he's going to put out singles that way first to try to gain a database of people who are interested in what he does which i think is brilliant and really smart and i think people will be totally jazzed to hear whatever he's got going on but he just released a song last week and it's great oh man yeah i'm so behind there's so many things i need to listen to i think you'll dig it yeah yeah Yeah, for sure i want to hear that episode but dude thank you yeah, of course, man. Thank you for reaching out. This is a pleasure. And I look forward to reading the rest of the book. I'm sure we'll keep in touch. Oh, yeah. I'm going to hit you up. Are we friends on Facebook or on the socials or anything? Instagram, I think. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, Rad. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Well, awesome, man. Well, I hope you write another book, part two, <laughs> and you'll have to come back and we'll chat about it. Awesome. If you're up for it. Anytime. Thanks for taking right, the man. time, Kyle. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, of course, man. All right. Take care. Have a good night. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I hope you had a good time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to help the podcast out, if you want to do a massive solid for us here at Having a Blast, if you could just leave us a review, a five-star review would be amazing wherever you listen to podcasts. Or if you just want to recommend this podcast to a friend who might enjoy it. All right. Hope you have a wonderful day. Hope you're having a blast listening to your favorite records. I'll talk to you later. (laughs) 